evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and this evening, I'm very, very honored and proud to introduce our guest, and her name is Dr. Phyllis Amaral. Dr. Amaral, she is a clinical psychologist, and she is the clinical director of the Center for the Partially Sighted in Los Angeles, California. One of the reasons that uh, I, I really wanted Dr. Amaral, and uh, she's very modest, so she usually prefers to be called Phyllis, but the reason I wanted Phyllis to be on, on the call was because of the fact that she was uh, so instrumental in keeping my own mindset in a positive way when I was forced to uh, give up uh, my practice and retire from optometry and, you know, endure the difficult changes of, of losing vision. So uh, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Phyllis Amaral. Hello, everyone. I'm really, really happy to be with you this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and I appreciate you, you coming on the show. You know, I know you've had a very, very long day and things, but you, you truly are one of the very best best in the world in terms of helping people, whether it is that they do have a vision problem or if they're a child of an older adult who has other medical issues, or even uh, I've seen how you've been so helpful with parents of young children who are visually impaired. But um, can you tell us what are some of the most important things that all of us as people who may have low vision or just experiencing other difficulties in our lives what are things that we might try to do for ourselves each day to try to keep a positive mindset? Because it's very, very easy to become really, really uh, frustrated and depressed and angry. And um, you could talk to my wife, Phyllis, and she'll tell you how difficult I was. <laughs> I'd be happy to. I, I, I first want to ask, um, and I... Dr. Takeshita, I'm going to have trouble saying Dr. Takeshita for the Thank next you. hour, so I'm going to revert Please to Bill, call me Bill. <laughs> who is uh, a wonderful friend and colleague and so wise. Uh, so I'm hoping that, Bill, you'll, uh, you'll jump in as well. And I'm going to start out talking a little bit about people specifically who are visually impaired. Some of this can be generalized to, you know, just everyone, and some of it I think is specific to folks who are visually impaired. A few years ago, in I think it was Psychology Today, and then it was also in a psych journal, there was an article on daily hassles. The thesis was, you don't need huge traumatic events to erode your mood. That just being subject to sort of constant or, or not even constant, but just a lot of daily hassles really can play a major role in... Um, just eroding your mood, making you feel dis distressed, depressed. I mention that because I, you know, I am, I've worked at the center for 30 years and I've been in contact with many, many people through support groups and just day to day, people who tell me about their lives and give me a window in to what it's like to be visually impaired. I don't for a moment think that, um, I think that people can accomplish whatever they want to accomplish. 
But I also think that sometimes it's just a little bit harder. I mean, there's millions of examples of that. If I drop an egg on a floor, I can see it really easily. I sweep it up, and it's gone in two seconds. If one of my support group members with macular degeneration drops that same egg on the floor, she's going to take her or him or her a little bit longer to get it up. It's just a little more of an effort. Just really uh, negotiating day-to-day life, arranging transportation, Let's face it, I mean, the, the, the communities as we know them are not really well set up to accommodate vision impairment. So while people do very well and accomplish great things, I think if you have a visual impairment, there is a little bit more of an effort involved. And those daily hassles take a real toll. Now... Do you notice this day-to-day? Probably not. You're so busy living your lives that you probably aren't thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a little bit more of a hassle for me than it might be for my fully sighted friend. Do you surmount those hassles? Absolutely, with grace and humor, and you go on about your business, and you do what you need to do, and you accomplish good things. Still, there's a toll to be taken. One of the things that we need to think about is just what's our expectation of ourselves? Are we pushing just maybe a little bit too hard? First of all, it's important to recharge physically. It's just a little more tiring sometimes. There's lots of information. There's lots of stimulation. Um, I am going to use Bill as an example for a moment. I watch him here every Wednesday dealing with clients and dealing with clients' families and doing an exquisite job of it and balancing enormous amounts of information uh, and having competing priorities, sometimes having three or four people who want him at the same time. And I think, oh, my gosh, how does he do that? Because I have a similar job, except by the end of my day, there's 90 million Post-its around and lots of cheap cheat sheets of what I'm supposed to be doing. And he balances a lot of information in his head beautifully, where I can use cheat sheets. And I would imagine at the end of the day, he's a little more tired than I am, even though he's done a much better job of his day than I have. So let me suggest the first, the first line of defense is to just recharge physically. Power nap. Close your, meditate for 10 minutes if you like to meditate. Close yourself in a room and just be quiet. Take a leisurely walk around the block. Sit in a garden and smell flowers. Whatever it is that's going to help you recharge for just 10 minutes, and then you're off and running again. I guarantee you that that's going to have a profound impact on mood. It sounds like a very, very simple thing, but just the simple act of physically powering down for a minute and recharging is really important to everybody, and I think even more important to folks um, who have to make a little bit extra effort. So that's the first thing I would suggest. You know, and Phyllis, I, I agree completely because one thing that I noticed as I was losing vision, I never really understood that losing vision could be such a tiring thing. Yeah. When you don't see things as sharply as your brain thinks it should be, the muscles of your eyes are always trying to focus, and it's very, very tiring. But if you don't sleep well at night, the next day, your vision as to what you see and how well you see is even worse. Yeah, interesting. But it took, it took me, you know, quite a while to realize the importance of, of this whole thing about rest. 
and I did start to take these power naps, 15-minute naps after I got home from work. I'd take a shower, take a little nap, and it was very helpful because of the fact that when I then interacted with my family at the dinner table, I wasn't uh, so much on the edge. But um, the other thing that I also noticed for myself and uh, heard from other people with vision impairment is that many people have a hard time falling asleep. They're always thinking, am I going to become totally blind? Are are we going to be able to have enough money to pay for the rent and have food? Or are people going to laugh at me if if I trip and fall? What what are some strategies that you have to, to help us to fall asleep if we cannot sleep? I know for me, the big mistake that I did, Phyllis, was that when I couldn't sleep, I would get up and I would go on my computer. And that almost just seemed to energize me. Yeah. <laughs> my, my sleeping was even worse. Yes. <laughs> so I can tell and people, I, don't go on the computer. <laughs> yeah, and and that's exactly right. And I, I made the same mistake. And then there's a whole body of research out there that, that, that says that it just enervates you and energizes you. And you go on your computer late at night and you've just lost all possibility of uh, of, of sleep. Now, there's sleep is a tough one. You know, I, I think sometimes people just worry about things that are just going on in life. Life stressful, and and sleep is a really a tough one. The the behaviorist would say, go to bed, and if it's fifteen or twenty minutes, you're not sleeping. Get up. Don't associate your bedroom with with sleeplessness. So try and sleep. Try and do all the behavioral things that you should that you know will calm you down. Um, don't drink caffeine. Don't eat a big meal and then try and go to sleep right after. Um, they talk about hot milk. They talk about tryptophan. I think sometimes what happens is exactly what you said. People are asleep during in whatever they're worried about during the day that they were able to keep at bay comes back to haunt them at night oh, my goodness, what happens if I lose all my sight? So you really have to talk to yourself about that. I mean, you have to, in the in the light of day where you're not stressed, where you're not so worried about that, you really need to prepare some answers so that you can talk to yourself when you're at bed and it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep. If I lose all my sight, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I know somebody who's totally blind. This is what they do. Um this is how I would respond. You really need to get some answers, a script, if you will, to sort of counteract those worries, and you have to talk to yourself. Now, you don't necessarily have to talk to yourself aloud, and if you're married, that might cause more harm than good, (laughs) but you have to talk to yourself in your head. You really have to be able to answer some of these questions um, so that you can counteract all this kind of dysfunctional thinking that you're you're going through with, with facts that will of calm you down. You don't want to think about these for the first time at night. You want to do it in the light of day, but you, you definitely want to have some ready-made answers, a plan, a strategy, so if those things are just haunting you at night, you can talk to yourself. Another strategy that, uh, that there's a psychiatrist named Darren Beck who developed a very popular type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, and he, 
he would say that sometimes he'd be plagued by these thoughts. They were intrusive thoughts, and they would just come, and he couldn't really control them. And they were not productive thoughts. What would I do if I lost my job? Those sorts of thoughts. And he wore, I, I kid you not, he wore a rubber band around his wrist, and every time he had a thought like that, he snapped his wrist. And sooner or later, those thoughts just sort of extinguished themselves because he was always snapping his wrist and hurting himself, you know, giving himself mm-hmm. a little... Mm-hmm. So any way that you can sort of um, stop, those, stop those thoughts, you can either, you know, come up with an answer and respond to yourself. You can purposely divert your attention, either through the rubber band snapping like Aaron Beck did or through a more pleasant means. But the fact of the matter is... Everybody suffers from those kind of intrusive thoughts that just happen, and we've got to really either figure out a way to get rid of them or or convince ourselves that we've got a plan no matter what happens. That's great. That's great. Now, what else can one do besides energizing themselves and training themselves to not have those negative thoughts? Well, a, a couple more things just along the lines of... of of the hassles. Um, I think people, generally speaking, need to pace themselves a little differently. Uh, I'm going to talk one more minute just specifically about people who are visually impaired, and then we'll go into something a little more general. The people that I'm most familiar with, and this probably is a little more relevant to people who had full vision at some point in their lives and then um, experienced the loss, and the yardstick that they use to compare themselves to is what they were like when they were fully sighted and maybe 10 years ago, which is a really tough yardstick to use. They don't ever cut themselves any slack. They don't ever give themselves a break. My recommendation is to really examine um, day-to-day life and allow just a little more time. Things are so unpredictable. Uh, in Los Angeles, where Dr. Takeshda and I live, you know, transportation is just a, a nightmare, and, I, and maybe in other parts of the country as well. So already, things aren't completely within your, your control. And if you can pinch yourself, if you can um, build in a buffer, if you can already, when you wake up in the morning, think, gee, this could be, you know, I, I'm going to just combat increasing stress by making sure that I've got enough time. Time is a really precious commodity. And I don't think that um, at least the the folks that I know and my support groups in Wanda, they don't give themselves enough time. They don't pace themselves. They're trying to just maintain the exact same lifestyle at the exact warp speed that they always did, and that's really, really tough. So I would say along with the uh, recharging physically, give yourself a little more time. Now, something more general, but I think equally important, there was a psychologist, there is a psychologist by the name of Lewinson, and he has a very simple model of what helps people remain happy. He says it's really just a simple balance between pleasant events in one's life and unpleasant events in one's life and neutral. So you're going to have probably predominantly neutral events in a day, and you're going to have some really good things, and you're going to have some really bad things. And as long as the good things and the bad things kind of balance themselves out, your mood is going to stay relatively stable 
and relatively good. But here's what happens sometimes. Vision changes or something else happens, another stressor. Some of the neutral things just become hard. So, for instance, going to the grocery store may be a neutral event. But now if you have to take a bus because you're not really driving anymore and you're in the light from the grocery store is reflecting in your eyes and you really can't see what you're doing very well and it's hard to read the ingredients, that's kind of slipped down into the negative side of things. So you've got that going on and at the same time, maybe some of the things that you really enjoy doing, you're not doing so much anymore. Maybe it's not quite so easy to read novels in the same way you used to. Or maybe TV isn't quite as enjoyable. So the ratio, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a simple concept, but the ratio of good to bad activities really shifts, and all of a sudden you're waking up in the morning and it's just kind of more neutral or dull and nothing really kind of exciting going on, and that really has, a, again, a real profound impact on being able to sustain a good mood. You can't do it. I, I had a support group of older adults, and and so there were two things going on. Most of the individuals in my group had had vision for most of their lives, and then they were just older, so there were other factors in addition to the vision loss. But they talked about really not being able to do the things that they really love to do anymore and, and missing, looking for a sort of a richness in life and really not being able to find it because some of the things they had done when they were fully sighted at 50, they weren't able to do anymore. It's not rocket science, but it does take some time and effort to really kind of look at how our life is, um, how our life is, is going and just say, hmm, I can't do, I can't travel in the same way I used to anymore, and maybe it's not so enjoyable, but I need to replace that with something else. I guess that's the key, is if there are things that aren't as enjoyable anymore, for whatever reason, make sure they get replaced with something else that is. They don't even have to be big ticket items. I'm not talking about a Hawaiian vacation. I'm talking about making sure you get some phone time with friends. Make sure once in a while you get a dessert, even though you know it's not good for you if you really like it. <laughs> uh-huh. Things of that caliber, it's not big changes that we have to make, but we have to really do an inventory to make sure that every day or at least every week that balance is there. Another place where this is really important is when people retire. It's the same sort of thing. So much of their social life and their day-to-day hellos and talking to colleagues is gone all of a sudden. And you really have to sort of do an inventory of what's what's happy in your life, what's not so happy, and try and get some more events, positive events, into your day-to-day. Well, I think as vision changes, you've got the same task, making sure that you are doing that inventory and you've still got some really joyful things every single day can be little things but just joyful things every day and i'm thinking that um i'm thinking that those might be some of the primary things i don't know any questions bill or any how does that make sense to you 
Oh, yeah, it definitely does. And I know for myself, um, it sounds very, very strange to many people when I do tell them, but one of the things that really made me so depressed mm-hmm. when I had to retire from optometry was because I truly loved my work so much. Yeah. And I loved to help children who had vision problems, and within one hour, I could usually improve their vision. But when I had to retire, and I was at home, and all my friends were at work, and I didn't like to watch these game shows on television, I really didn't have anything to do. And one of the things that my wife had recommended, she says, well, what do you miss the most about not working? I said, not being able to help the children. So she said, well, why don't, why don't we start a foundation where we'll raise money to help children with vision problems? And it was just a wonderful idea because it really was something that allowed me to do something that I missed, something that I really enjoyed. And after I started to have a little bit of success of receiving donations, I felt like I had a sense of worth because I, I thought in my mind as a person who is low vision or blind, I'm, I'm not worth anything. The only thing I knew how to do in my life was to be an eye doctor, and I couldn't do that. But with this new idea of having a foundation and receiving uh, donations from people and raising money, I said, you know what? This is good. You know, I'm I'm actually able to do something that's even helpful. And uh, it, it really, really was helpful, just as you said. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so very true. I think the other thing, I, you know, when you, you were talking about having a job and then uh, having a job helping children and then feeling like you couldn't be helpful anymore, I think that's so incredibly important to everyone. And uh, it's human nature in some respects to, um, I don't really know how to say this, but we we get down on ourselves so quickly when we think that we're not giving. I think we all internalize the, the saying, it's better to give than receive. And yeah. then if we ever have to ask for help once, it makes, it, it in our minds, we start to see ourselves as someone who's not a giver anymore. We're a taker. And I think we all have sort of this dysfunctional way of thinking about things. If we ask for help once, we're helpless. Um if we can't be giving all the time, we're useless. And I think it's fact that everybody needs help on occasion in some area, and we all hate to do it. And I think that my group members here, the thing that they hated the most was the moment where they had to ask for help in some way. And I think one... It knocks out the um, it it makes them redefine themselves in a way that isn't very complimentary to themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And two, they think that if they've had to ask for help once, as they say, they can never give, they can never be helpful again. And you have so dramatically proven that, you know, I mean, you, your, your vision's gone and you're helping more than ever at this point as far as I can see. But it, it was a hard psychological transition, I bet, for you to get to that point. 
Yes, and it's something that you really have to train your mind to, again, stop thinking about those negative things because for me, all I could think about was, what if I become blind one day? That, that's that, that's going to be the worst thing ever. And then number two, I would think, why would God do this to me? It became something where I, I lost faith in, in God. I don't know if everybody out there does or does not believe in God, but I, I then tried to find that answer. Why would God do that to me? And if there was a God, would God do something like this to any person? And my mind became so focused on those types of thoughts that, again, it really paralyzed me. But I then came to a point, and for me, the the turning point actually happened to be the passing of of my brother who passed away from a a brain hemorrhage, as you know, Phyllis. It was uh, unexpected. But it made me realize that life is more than just what we see. You know, if he was able to still be here and I could talk to him, or even if he couldn't talk and I could hold his hand or, uh, you know, comb his hair for him or whatever that it would be that he needed, you know, that was something that would have meant so much for me. So I decided that I cannot control what's happening to my eyes and my vision, but I can control what's happening in my mind. So every day, as soon as I woke up, I would say to myself, name three things that I'm totally grateful for. What are three things that I'm grateful for? And I remember when I started to do that, number one, I'm so grateful that my family, that they're okay. I didn't receive any phone calls from the hospital or anybody saying anybody is sick or injured in a car accident. Number two, (laughs) it was kind of funny because the way that I thought of these things, living in California, I said, thank goodness there was no earthquake last night. (laughs) (laughs) Right there with you. (laughs) You know? And uh, number three, I said, thank goodness that I don't have anybody who is after me. I don't have the IRS who's after me. I don't have crooks or criminals after me or anything like that. And each day when I woke up, I would think of three new things that I was completely grateful for. And the other thing that I would do is that when I would go to sleep, I would then think of five things that I did that day that I really felt good about, you know, and it would be things like, I I feel so great that I I learned how to make a ham and cheese omelet today by myself, or I'm so glad that when I brush my teeth, I put toothpaste on my toothbrush and it wasn't bro cream, you know, I mean, they could be little things, but it, it reminded me at the end of the evening that I was getting better. I was achieving goals that I could do things myself, and I didn't have to ask anybody, but it made me feel better. It's a great strategy. Both strategies that you talked about, one, gratitude is so incredibly curative and therapeutic, and to every day think of something that's making you grateful is a wonderful strategy. But then the other thing you talked about, uh, just 
reminding yourself of what you can do well, reminding yourself of what you did that day that really made you feel good, I think is brilliant. And, and I'll tell you why. We really sabotage ourselves with our thoughts. We have, every all of us, we have a way of seeing the world. Uh, we, we grew up and we formed rules in our head about how the world works, and we came away with impressions, and some of them were wrong. They were, seen, they were, they were formed through kids' eyes, and some of them work sometimes, but not, not other times. But we don't often examine them until we're in a crisis, and when we're in a crisis or we're, we're facing a real stressor or challenge, a lot of these rules come out. So I'll give you an example, because I know that sounded kind of abstract. You take a little kid, and he gets a report card, and he brings it home to his parents, and he's got four A's in the B. And the parents just kind of joke, or maybe they're not joking, and they say, hey, where's the fifth A? <laughs> and the first time was kind of funny, and the second time, but, but the kid sooner or later incorporates the notion that if it's not perfect, it's not so good. Now, we know that's not true. It doesn't stand up to reality, but this child brings that thought into his adult life. And maybe it doesn't get challenged for years, but then he's in a situation where he's unable to do something. He he meets something that, that might defeat him. And you know what? It's not the circumstance that defeats him. It's himself because he's thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm not perfect anymore. What good am I? Oh, my gosh, I'm not perfect anymore. I must be worthless. And we have many, many, many of these thoughts rattling around in our heads, all of us, all of us because of just funny learning, incidental learning when we were growing up. or And as again, they don't often get challenged. And then all of a sudden you're in a situation and something pops out. And if you can think, if you can, if you can really start to take an inventory of your thoughts, what am I telling? Let's go back to vision for a minute. What am I telling myself about this vision loss? Am I telling myself on any level that this diminishes me in any way? Am I telling myself that I'm not as good as useful to my family anymore? Am I telling myself that, um, I, you know, one of my group members said, I, I thought I was damaged goods. It's not reality, but we carry these thoughts in our head, and they're so automatic. They're so much a part of us that unless we really, really make an effort to discover what we're telling ourselves, we can defeat ourselves. But, you know, but, yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, and you know, Phyllis, that is so true, but it's also very easy to begin to uh, lose that type of self-confidence in yourself or you begin to have those feelings of uh, not being as worthy. And I'll tell you, one of the things that really made me feel this way, and I'm certain many of our listeners have experienced similar things, but... We were, my wife and my kids and I, we were, we were over there at the International House of Pancakes there to have breakfast. And, you know, the waitress comes and I tell my daughter, yeah, what do you want, Jamie? And she orders. And my son, you order. And then my wife, she orders. And when my wife finished ordering, the waitress said to my wife, what does he want? Mm-hmm. Referring to me. Yeah. As though I... I couldn't order just because of the fact that I was blind. And, you know, there's many different things that happen like that. And at times, people, uh, perhaps it's through their ignorance, 
but they really make you feel as though you are not important or they make you feel as though you're not even there. How how do you recommend that people with low vision, how how can we learn to cope with that so that we don't just blow up and explode? Because there were times that I was ready to blow up at people and uh, that really isn't my nature. <laughs> no, it's not your nature at all. And I think people cope with it in 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 different ways. I mean, I've seen people make a joke about it. I've seen people educate, you know. My eyes don't work particularly well, but my ears are great. <laughs> and and I know exactly what I want to eat. Yeah. I I think that's been the most common stance I've seen is just some sort of retort. Although I've heard other people say, you know, I get so tired of educating. I just get so tired of having to educate all the time because people just don't know how to approach me. Uh, people are uncomfortable approaching me. They'd rather approach my husband or my wife. Yes, that's so true. And for yeah. myself, maybe for others out there, they have come to the same realization. But what I realize now when people do things that are not really what I call appropriate uh, I've, I've had many times, just last week I was coming out of the elevator from one of our clinics, and this lady, she said, oh, here, let me help you, let me help you. And I said, oh, that's quite all right, I have my cane. She goes, no, let me help you. She wanted to help me, and she did. She grabbed my necktie and just started pulling me towards the front door. <laughs> and it was something that I just had to laugh. And I I knew she had good intentions, but the reality of it is that most people, most people in our society don't know many people who have blindness or low vision because it is so relatively uncommon, and they don't know what to do. So they can't really be blamed for being ignorant because our society has not taught people how to help people who have a vision problem or hearing problem or other problems. You know, I agree with you and I don't. I, I, I think that anybody who is uncomfortable approaching someone who's visually impaired could open their mouths and say, I'm not sure if you need help. Would you tell me if you, you know, what to do? They, they could ask the question. Going back to what you said a minute ago, the last thing I think is absolutely the best strategy. I, I remember our founder, who many of you um, may have heard of, Sam Janensky, was the founder of the center out here and just an incredible guy. And when things like that happened to him, he would just not say anything. But then later he would just say, well, i got to thank somebody for a great story today, and he would just retell it. And for <laughs> him, it was, you know, his lecture um, – for his lectures and dining room conversation with his family, and that's that's how he got through it because there are just so many lame people, or who who really uh, I'm not being as gracious as you, Bill, but I I think people have, it's, it's incumbent on those of us who are ignorant to ask questions, and when we don't, I think that you're perfectly within your rights to haul off and yell at them but but that gets tiring it does get tiring and i think the best approach is just to laugh and make it a story you know and i think also other things for uh, we may have family members of a person who's visually impaired uh, on the call here and uh, 
what kinds of other suggestions can you give them? It is important that they get their sleep and energy and, and, and that they try to keep negative thoughts from their minds as well. But it's also very difficult, and it could be depressing on the husband or wife or child or parent of a person with vision impairment. Are there any different types of uh, strategies that you would have for those family members and friends? Well, for the family members, uh, and this involves the person with a vision loss as well, I think communication is really, really, really important that a lot of families that I come into contact with really haven't sat down and had a really honest conversation. I see you going through this and it scares me because I see you going through this and I'm wondering what will happen if. So there's a lot of silence, a lot of a lot of stress, um, a lot of fear. And let's just take the husband and wife for a minute. They're used to sort of approaching problems as a team and all of a sudden they're on opposite ends of the problem and they're not a team anymore approaching this problem so communication i think is critical and i i don't think it happens as often as it should um that's that's the biggest stress reducer yeah and i have to say to everybody out there listen i think that is such key information is that communication when i was losing my vision i wanted to be the the man of the house and i didn't want my wife to know how bad anything was I didn't want her to know how scared I was. I didn't want her to know what were the, the possible negative consequences in the future. And I really kept things all to myself. But that yeah. was really wrong because it was something where I really became even more and more and more stressed because I internalized it. And number two, what I was really hoping that she would say is, don't worry, because if there's anything that ever needs to happen, I would go out there and get a job. I, that's what I wanted to hear from my wife. But what I told her, I said, don't worry about anything. We're going to be fine, and I'm doing investments, and we're fine. You don't need to work. You don't have to think about going to work. Everything is fine. But in my mind, I was really thinking, darn it, why don't you go get a job? <laughs> And, and, that, and I bet in her, yeah. <laughs> that type of lack of communication, it, it really was not doing either of us any good. And another quick, quick story about communication. I remember there was a time that she was going to go to the market, and I said, where are you going? And she goes, oh, I'm going to go do a go grocery shop. And I said, oh, you know what? Hey, I'll go with you, and I'll carry the stuff to the car and all of that. And she goes, no, that's okay. Why don't you just stay home and relax? No. My wife was thinking, it is too much trouble for me to go walk in the grocery store when I can't see. And in my mind, I was thinking that she says, I don't want to be seen in public with that guy who can't see well. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so this idea of really trying to be open and communicate, it could really uh, prevent a lot of inaccurate thoughts. Well, I think you just I think you just uh, illustrated two questions: the communication one for sure, and then where did that come from? He doesn't want to be she doesn't want to be seen with somebody who can't 
see well. I mean, that's clearly a, a, a dysfunctional thought of your own that has nothing to do with her. And I, I, we all have them. We all have them. But but it's interesting if you get those out into the open. If you really can take an inventory of those thoughts and and you know, as soon as it became clear to you, I'm sure you realized, oh heck, she would never really feel that way. If That's you didn't, right. then I'm going to hit you upside the head next time I see you because she would never feel that. But but I bet you didn't even know that was lurking around in your head until it came out. And we all have those thoughts that really sabotage ourselves. Yeah, those types of thoughts that we create ourselves at time really make things difficult. I, I thought the same thing. I thought that my children would never want to bring their friends over because they didn't want their friends to see that their dad was disabled. Yeah. Um, but later I, I learned that seemed like everybody was coming over and uh, everything was okay. But uh, Dr. Amaral or Phyllis, do you have some time to take some questions from some of our listeners? Oh, I'd love to take some questions. And also, I mean, we've got a gold mine out there. I'd love to hear some other experiences and other recommendations they might have. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. If any of you have a question or if you do have a suggestion to share with everybody, go ahead and press the star six. And remember, this is being recorded by Airs LA, so if you'd like to keep things private, uh, you do not have to introduce yourself. But uh, let's hear uh, some of the information that you have. Press Tom, Dr. Bill? Okay. Dr. Bill, this is Tom. Let's go with Ken first, okay, Tom? I heard Ken first. Okay, yeah, yeah thanks. To follow up on a couple of very good comments that you folks have made already. In terms of the other people from attitudes of other people, the general public, one of the things that we all need to keep in mind is that is when they've done research and they've asked people, you know, what's the disability you fear most? Blindness always scores first. So the general right. public thinks that blindness is the very worst disability anybody can have. We know that's not true, but that affects how they deal with us, at least initially. And I love uh, Dr. Bill's example about how dealing with it humorously. And I, I did some writing. I wrote an article that was published in the Braille Forum several years ago and it's called Crosswalk cross, Crosstalk. Crosswalk Crosstalk. I describe experiences I've had here in New York and Midtown Manhattan with people that are always trying to help me in cross uh, intersects and so forth. And one of the, uh, the funny lines, I uh, hope it's funny, I use is when people help me around an obstacle on the sidewalk. When they're finished helping, helping around it, almost always they say, they say, now go straight. And my response almost always is, you sound like my parole officer. <laughs>
helping me with my mail, helping me with reading, uh, you know, household reading, household label, and so forth. So there's very specific things that I can get help with, and there are volunteers out there with the help. And and I, it turns out that in that transaction, they're getting some value from it too. I can tell they enjoy helping me, or sometimes I find some way that I can help them too. And Dr. Bill indicated, you know, his experience now about where he's doing something very valuable for the for the general public. So, and I, I'm involved in volunteer work my, myself, too. So I'm giving as well as taking, yeah. and even the taking process can be very beneficial to both sides. I have many experiences with that. Thanks. Those are some great points, Ken. Thank you. Uh, Tom Lalos from Wyoming. <laughs> okay. I've got a couple of comments, and then I have a question at the end. Uh, when I first uh, started losing my sight, I was about in the middle of my career. And I was a forester, so you had to be pretty mobile. You had to be able to drive and charge around and do all the various things that had to be done. And that really hit me like a ton of bricks. And I still had, we were in the middle of raising our kids. They were all, you know, in junior high and high school. So I'm thinking, holy cow, what? how am I going to do this? Well, the company I worked for uh, was very good with me. They allowed me an opportunity to continue my work. And actually, the second half of my career, uh, I was low vision, and I actually excelled in, in my career, and I became one of the best in our industry as, as to what I did, which was forest engineering. And uh, to the point where I actually made sighted people nervous as to what I was able to accomplish. And so my wife, used, she's very good at pulling me up short and making me look at what's going on around me, and she said, Tom, you really are making people nervous. You need to back <laughs> off a little bit. But uh, but you can excel if you really want to, and if you just – it's a lot of times timing is everything, and the timing was just right for me to do that. But on a real personal note, I found myself able to pull myself up by the bootstraps. A friend of mine lost one of his eyes in an accident, and he was a log truck driver, and so he couldn't drive for a while, and he was in the bottom of the bucket just like I was. And I found that by helping him climb out of his bucket, that really changed my life in a way that I'm thinking, okay, where do we go with this? So I started a low-vision support group in a little mountain community where I lived, and that really energized me, and, and, it, and it gave and it validated my life. And I know you two have talked about that tonight. It's very, very important to have a, to have a purpose. And so once I retired, and now we live in Wyoming, and on and on and on, now I find myself still trying to help people on our local level with the local support group, at the state level and at the federal level with some of the groups that I'm involved with, CCLVI being one of them. Uh, my question is, though, and I've shared this with Annette, I don't have time for me anymore. And so how do I get some me time? Come on now. <laughs> I'm going to leave that one for the psychologist. <laughs> okay, Bill. <laughs> it, it's really much, difficult. It's it is really difficult. difficult. Yeah. Because yeah. I really enjoy helping people. You know, I've, 
wired that way. And uh, but I'm really caught in a I'm caught in a situation where I don't have any time left for myself. And um, other. And- I'm sorry, go ahead. Was there someone else there? Well, it was Annette. I was going to say in lieu of a, 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 an answer to that, I want to say I hear you, Tom, because um, I'm a lot like you, and I guess 98% of what I do is, is volunteer. And uh, But I know the importance of it. So I'm, your question is ringing in my ears, you know, and, and what answer that I would be speaking to myself if I were to ask the question is um, that you have to give yourself that fact that you're important to you and the the people around us. So I'm including myself because I'm talking to myself and you get to hear it out loud <laughs> that um, I have no, to... <laughs> I have to realize that I'm important too, not just the people around me. And if I get worn out, how am I going to help anybody else or, you know, be even in a good mood with people around me? Uh, I, I can't be my best unless I schedule in some me time. And so I'm kind of preaching to me, but that's what came to mind when you asked the question. Now I'll give it to the real doctor. <laughs> and, and And I would... This is Phyllis, and I would say the same exact thing. You absolutely hit the nail on the head. You're clearly doing something that you enjoy and you're good at, and that is one definition of me time. But the more important definition is just some time to wind down and not have to be on so much. If you can't get that into your schedule, you're not going to be good to anybody. So that's the tact I would use because clearly you're wired you're wired to volunteer, both of you. I mean, you, the, it, it gives you a sense of importance, and you're obviously very good at it. So you're going to have to just be really um, strict with yourself about taking little bits of time to wind down so that you've got more to give and and start with just maybe little bits of time and work up to uh, maybe, you know, a little more time at least. And that's that's the rationale you give because it's absolutely right. You need it so that you have more to give. Great. Thank you. Next How question. How do you just the obligations you have, though? Well, Tom, you know, I think what that is is that if you write down on a piece of paper all of your obligations or if you're using the calendar for that, if you see that you really don't have time for yourself, there's certain things that you may have to tell these groups that yep. I, I really just can't do it because – with a person such as yourself who's very giving, very caring, very intelligent, and you, you have this experience, it's going to be where people continue to ask even more of your time. It won't get any better. If it is for a time that people stop asking you, it probably is because of the fact that you are not able to give that 110% and they don't want you anymore. Can I build one more thing onto that, even, that um, there might be people around you. You might be the best one to do all of those things that you're doing, but it it might be possible that there are others around you that, that would just, they may not know it ahead of time, but if you ask them, hey, could you do this, what you're doing is you're going, you're building a trait in them that they didn't even know they had. 
So if they had an opportunity to do some of the things, even even one, and then kind of make that a practice in your life, that's equipping another person to do something they never thought they had a skill to do. That's a lovely that's, idea. That's very good, Annette. Thank you. Yeah. You Dr. Bill? Oh, okay, yes. Next person? Yes. Who is that? This is Kathy Lyons. I'm Hi, in Buffalo, New York, and I think my sister Ellen's on the phone. And yes, I wanted is. to ask the group if they are familiar with something called Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's a phenomenon well, well, where someone well, had happy. vision. I would be yep. happy to answer that question if you would like. Uh, okay. Charles, Charles Bonnet syndrome, this is a situation that often affects people who have diseases to the retina, such as macular degeneration or it might be diabetic retinopathy, where the brain tends to see things that are not there. For example, we see this all the time that a patient may come in and say, I was walking through the park and I was, was walking on the green grass. I saw a picket fence with rabbits running in front of me. And when I went there, there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. I've had patients who say, I was eating soup, pea soup. And suddenly inside my soup, there were all of these lines that were there, and it made a very beautiful pattern. Mm -hmm. So this is something where many people who do have different visual conditions, they see these things. And this is something that is very, very common. It is something normal. And we explain to our patients who have these kinds of eye diseases that it is normal and you're not going crazy. Mm-hmm. Because so that can many, affect your sleep, can't it? Because there are so many patients who see these things, and they are afraid to tell anybody because they're afraid that people are going to think that they are crazy. Uh-huh. So if you do see these types of things, and you do have macular regeneration or another type of eye problem, it is very, very common for people to see these types of images and they look very real. But the yes, good thing about do. it, it does not mean it does not mean that you're going crazy. And I that seems to affect my our other sister's sleep pattern because because of the fact that it's an image that the brain is creating and not that the eye is perceiving, you can't close your eyes to make it go away. No, you could close your eyes and the brain will still see that. And yeah. this is this is again why it's so important that people do talk about this, because when you do talk about this to your doctor, there are some times that the doctor will refer you to neurologists, and they may even prescribe different medications if it's something that you're becoming a bit too focused on. Uh-huh. But when when we tell people that this is normal, and it's kind of a funny situation. Most of our patients, they then learn to deal with it, and then they don't see these as frequently. But if a person does not know that this is normal, they may become a bit overly focused on it. It keeps them up all night. And as Dr. Amaral said, if we don't get the sleep to re-energize, we don't get to do things that bring us pleasure, these things can begin to affect our emotions. Mm-hmm. So I hope your sisters are listening and they understand that this is normal 
And if it is something that is too much of a problem, to see their their doctor and to ask for that type of a referral. I actually made a piece of art at our local Albright Knox Art Gallery. Oh, really? Showing other people what I see, quote-unquote, see. Oh, that is great. That is great. Well, we we would have to try to have somebody take a a photograph of your artwork, and uh, we could get that over to Annette Carter at the CCLVI website or something. Oh, okay, that would be wonderful. Does anybody else have a different question? We have time for two more questions for Phyllis. Or anybody have any other comments or suggestions as to how they have kept a positive attitude? Okay, great. Well, Phyllis, uh, this information that you have shared has been extremely very, very helpful. I think we all know now that we do need to re-energize. We do need to... Stop thinking about these negative thoughts, whether we're putting a rubber band on our wrist or just telling ourselves not to think of these things. And then to do things that will kind of shift the balance so we're doing more things that are enjoyable as compared to things that are not enjoyable. Do the things that will allow you to relax and to enjoy and have fun doing things. And I think as Tom Lalos and you also said, Phyllis, I think it's so important that we all try to do things to help others. I think when we help others, we feel good about ourselves, we start feeling sorry for ourselves, and things are, are going to be so much better. Uh, Phyllis, do you have a contact information or website that you could share with our listeners so if they want to get a hold of you? Sure. I'm at the Center for the Partially Decided, and I will, our, our website is www.low hyphenvision.org, and and my email address is pamaral, it's P-A-M-A-R-A-L, at low-vision.org. And if you have any questions or any suggestions uh, that, that you can think of, I'd be happy to get email from any of you, and, you know, we'll pass it along to our support groups, and we'll benefit from your knowledge as well. So I appreciate you having me. I really I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This information's been very helpful. And Mr. Dick Burden from Arizona, as usual, I want to thank you for your generosity in recording these lectures for us. This again will be up at the Arizona website and cclvi.org website. And uh Remind all of you also to attend the acb.org. They do have an auction, and that will be on December 8th, where you can then try to win a lot of nice prizes and gifts. And lastly, I want to thank all of you for attending, and we will see you next month when we talk more about low vision. So thank you again, everybody, and good night.